Hello, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury for National Preview Online. Welcome to another conservative podcast from the newest conservative podcast channel out there. We are on the verge of being listed with Apple iTunes. You'll be able to follow us there, and we will shortly be listed with Google, so you will be able to follow us there as well. We have a very, very information, fact-filled week coming up for you this week. Today, we're going to begin with something very, very interesting. Uh, but before we do, we'd like to remind you to please follow us on the web at nationalpreviewonline.com. You can also reach us at facebook.com forward slash nationalpreview. You can find us on Twitter, although we try to avoid that sewer whenever we can. It's just a matter of necessity sometimes. And by all means, follow us on the new conservative counterpart to Twitter, Parler. Parler is growing in leaps and bounds. It went from just a million to a million and a half in less than a few weeks, and we expect it will continue to grow. And those are real people on Parler, unlike Twitter, which is occupied by a lot of bots. Now, today is the first, I should say, like an installment we're going to try and do. We're going to try this week uh, to tell you something a little bit more about the left, what the plot is, what they've been trying to do. Uh, since I was a little boy in terms of turning this country communist and how a lot of events have happened in recent years and they're using the election of Donald Trump as an excuse to try and foist this leftist agenda on us once again. And unfortunately, given the preceding eight years under Barack Hussein O, uh, and given that the Bush administration, preoccupied as it was with the wars in Iraq and the wars in Afghanistan, uh, did not do much to roll back what had been done by the Clintons. And I said in one of my earlier podcasts here that I thought the election of Bill Clinton was the beginning of a lot of the problems we're having in the 21st century. In any event, old Barry O factors prominently in today's show. Last week, there was a funeral for Representative John Lewis, who recently passed away after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. Now, John Lewis was a member of the Democratic Party. He was of African-American extraction. But John Lewis was a legend. Uh, he didn't grow up rich. He grew up poor. And he did suffer a lot during the Civil Rights era. And so John Lewis deserves uh, a measure of, re of respect from every American. And his 17 terms in Congress certainly warranted him having a rather large celebrity-like funeral. John Lewis served as the congressman for the state of Georgia from the 5th Congressional, congressional District from 1987 until his death this year in 2020. 17 big terms. Now, he was one of the big six leaders, uh, groups who organized the 1963 March on Washington. And he fulfilled many key roles in the civil rights movement and its actions to end legalized racial segregation in the United States. In 1965, John Lewis led the first of three Selma to Montgomery marches across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Now, in a particular incident on one of those marches, which became known as Bloody Sunday, state troopers and police clashed. The police supposedly attacked, actually supposedly they did, attacked the marchers, including Lewis. And Lewis was uh, hit over the head several times with a nightstick and, and awoke 
uh, in a hospital. And the film of that had gotten out. Uh, there, were, there were video cameras there. Back then it was just tapes. Uh, and it became known. And it didn't reflect well on the troopers. And it was uh, instrumental in helping to advance the civil rights cause. Now, before we go any further, let's make a brief note about the civil rights movement. You know, today, if you would hear the Democrats tell it, you would think that they were the ones who brought civil rights to minorities in this country, and specifically to African Americans. Uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. Most of the Democrats, or most of the southern states, where you had most of these Jim Crow laws, and where you had the former slave states, they were all run by Democrats. They were known as the Dixiecrats, coming from Dixie. And they were very, very conservative, and they were very anti-black. And they opposed the civil rights legislation. It was only because of Republican support that the civil rights legislation was passed. So I don't know how the left has been able to spin this to make it seem like Republicans are anti-black, but it was a Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, who wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. It was a Republican president who fought to preserve the Union and to free the slaves. It was a Republican president in the personage of former General Ulysses S. Grant who furthered um, expansion of rights for minorities. It was Republican politicians that were instrumental in passing the Civil Rights Act. It were Democratic politicians that opposed the liberation of the slaves. It was the Democrats in the South who formed the KKK as a brutal arm of the Democratic Party to attempt to keep blacks under the thumb of white authority after the emancipation. So somehow we need to reach more black Americans and educate them as to which party has actually been on their side. And even in the present day, what you see is through the dispensation of and the redistribution of wealth in this country, trying to increase welfare expenditures and give people these crumbs, that they keep people that are uneducated uh, and in minor, of minority extraction uneducated and enslaved. Only in this case, instead of being enslaved with chains and forced to do manual labor, they're paid to be shiftless and lazy and do nothing. As long as they just don't cause any trouble and reliably vote for the Democrat every four years or whatever the term of the particular office at hand is, they'll get their little crumbs and they'll live off it. They'll never have anything more than that, but they'll always have that. And that's contemptible in my view. In any event, this good man, John Lewis, was taken from us by pancreatic cancer. And there was a big funeral for him. Now, one of the eulogists, and there were many at, at John's funeral, uh, was George W. Bush. He gave a very nice, pleasant speech, devoid of politics, just fond memories of a man whom he had worked with when he was president, and John was a member of Congress. And then, of course, Barry O., Barack Hussein O., gave what was supposed to be a eulogy at John Lewis's funeral. Now, most eulogies don't need to be 40 minutes long, but that's because Barry O. just couldn't resist turning it into a contemptible political speech. He could barely contain his dislike for police officers, you could hear this, as he began recounting the trials and tribulations of John Lewis during the Civil Rights era when he was clubbed and 
others in the civil rights layer. And then as he progressed, I was waiting for it once I started to hear this, he had the audacity to say, yeah, just like today, just like today where we have the state brutalizing peaceful protesters. Well, let's examine that. First of all, the people who were protesting for civil rights back in the 60s were truly nonviolent and peaceful. All they were asking for was equal treatment. They didn't riot. They didn't burn. They didn't destroy. All they asked for was equal rights, and they were brutalized in many cases. These peaceful protesters to whom Barry O is referring to are the people who were trying to burn down a federal courthouse in Portland, Oregon, with the judge still inside. Now, I don't know how you can compare peaceful protesters just simply asking for equal rights to thugs who are trying to burn down a courthouse and along with it, a federal judge or judges. And then he made an oblique reference to President Trump as a modern-day George Wallace by saying, but George Wallace may be gone, but we still have federal authorities. This is about as contemptible as you can get. And it's only gotten away with because we have a complicit media which covers this crap and doesn't call him on it. If it wasn't for Fox News and talk radio, nobody would be calling him on it. A real journalist would say, uh, and President Barack Obama went a little far today in trying to compare uh, protesters from the 60s with those who were trying to burn down federal courthouses and do violence throughout Oregon and Seattle and other places where we see it. But this is what's happening. Now, likewise, the federal troops, federal law enforcement, wouldn't have to go into Portland, Oregon, and other places if the local authorities would uphold their oaths of office. We have a Portland mayor, Ted Wheeler, who seems to think this is okay. He's got more problem with the, with the federal law enforcement coming in, trying to rid his city of this nonsense, than he does with the, with the anarchists that are trying to burn his city down which tells me, and most logical people, that he's for it, that he supports it, because he thinks somehow this is a justifiable expression of anger. Ditto for Oregon Governor Kate Brown. This should never be allowed. Both of them should be removed for office, for dereliction of duty. They have failed to uphold their oath to keep the peace. And you cannot expect the President of the United States, to sit idly by and allow a state to devolve into anarchy simply because local authorities refuse to do anything about it or fail to even recognize it as a problem. But I didn't want to focus so much on the eulogy. I, do want, I did want to mention it, as I did, uh, and I have, the, the, the contemptible way he tried to... Uh, conflate the two. But let's talk about the man himself, Barack Obama, and let's compare him to another successful contemporary African-American who also recently died, Mr. Herman Cain. I'm sure you all remember Herman Cain. Herman Cain ran for president back in 2012 and his candidacy was derailed 
uh, as a consequence of uh, sexual harassment allegations. It's amazing to me how sexual harassment allegations always seem to be able to effectively derail the candidacy of a Republican. It doesn't affect a Democrat at all. I mean, Bill Clinton was a, was a goddamn rapist, by, uh, for God's sakes. He was an out-and-out rapist. He's a perjurer. He had his law license suspended in consequence. And it's well known. Didn't seem to bother anybody about that. Didn't seem to bother them that his wife, who was running for president, knew about it, let it go, the big champion of women. Uh, But Herman Cain left us also very recently. Uh, Back in 2006, Mr. Cain had been diagnosed with um, stage four colon cancer, and most people thought he was he was done by then. And he had metastasized uh, into his liver. He was given a thirty percent chance of survival. He underwent surgery and chemotherapy, and after which his cancer was in remission. Uh, supposedly, uh, they say he passed away from complications from COVID nineteen. Now, Herman Cain had comorbidities. Uh, this cancer, obviously, and he went to a rally with President Trump and talked about people are fed up with the masks. There was a tweet that was sent out, which was deleted by his staff um, the day he died. Um, It's it's sad that we lost Herman Cain. We lost him just two weeks after John Lewis on July 30th. I want to see what is said at his eulogy. Because that's really the point of today's show. I want to show you how the media treats people like Barack Obama, a man completely devoid of achievement prior to becoming president, and really devoid of achievement as president, compared to how they're going to treat Herman Cain. Let me read a little bit for you about the life of Barack Hussein O, and then let me read about Herman Cain's life and see if you can see a difference. Barry O, we all know, is supposedly born in Hawaii. And there's a lot to suggest that that may or may not be true, but I'm not going to revisit that issue. People have spoken enough about it, so I'm not going to. I'm just going to deal with the things that we do know that are not in dispute. He lived a privileged life. His white grandparents were known leftists, as was his mother. Um, He went to a private school, a pre-education school, from three to five. And then he went to some Indonesian language schools when his mother remarried. And his uh, stepfather, Satoro, uh, was his last name. He was raised largely by his grandparents. Uh, Since his mother died, she was never around as much as from what I can gather, but in any event, his grandparents were very big in his life. Now, his early life, in terms of his academic achievements, doesn't seem to be punctuated uh, with anything uh, in the way of distinction. He does write that he smoked a lot of marijuana, drank a lot, and used a lot of cocaine. He graduated from high school in 1979, and he moved to Los Angeles 
and he attended Occidental College on a full scholarship. Now, there were articles written uh, back then during his presidency that this was a scholarship program that was only for foreign exchange students, so how did he possibly get this scholarship if he was really an American citizen? Some people have debunked that, but again, I just mentioned it as a point of information. I'm not going to dwell on it. He made his first public speech in February of 81, called for Occidental to divest from Africa, started to become political. And then in 1981, he transferred as a junior to Columbia University in New York City. Now, this I will tell you from what I know about Ivy League colleges and big colleges like Columbia, very unusual to get a transfer to a school like that in your junior year. They generally don't want you. They want you from the beginning. So you, you may be able to go to a master's program after having graduated a four-year undergrad school, then you can apply to a, a master's, like a lot of people who go to Yale, let's say, and then they go to Harvard Business for their MBA for, you know, for the fifth year. That you can do. But to get transferred in, midstream in your undergrad, very unusual. There was a lot of string pulling there, you can be sure. It would be interesting to look at that a little more. Uh, he majored in political science with a specialty in international relations and English literature. Lived off campus. Worked a little bit as a research analyst, supposedly, and writer for the New York Public Research Group. Worked there for three months, City College, 85. Now, we're not going to get into how he met his wife. Uh, again, his personal life. I don't want to get into the man's personal uh, life. But after he graduates Columbia, he moves from New York to Chicago, where he gets hired as the director of Developing Communities Project, supposedly a church-based community organization um, that was made up of certain Catholic parishes uh, on the south side of Chicago, which is, you know, uh, an area that was economically challenged and um, was a, a minority area. He was supposedly looking to help them out. I think he was looking to help himself out. Um, but this is what he was. He was a community organizer. Then he goes to Harvard. And they make it a big deal because he was supposedly given a full scholarship to Northwestern, which is a good law school. But he went to Harvard. He gets selected to be the editor of Harvard Law Review at the end of his first year. And that's unusual. And he becomes president of the Harvard Law Journal in his second year. And a research assistant to the constitutional scholar Lawrence Tribe while at Harvard for two years. Now, nobody can find anything this guy wrote while he was the editor of Law Review. It's inconceivable to me that you could have that much involvement in a law review. Law Review is, is the place in every law school where uh, students possessed of a great ability to write and, and research often write uh, articles. And if you write a good article and it gets published, and it can actually substitute uh, for like a, a, a thesis. Uh, paper that you may have to write when, when you're in school. So this guy is involved in law review. He writes no articles, does nothing. He's completely absentee. Now, the fact that he was the first black president of Harvard Law Review gained a lot of attention, but he didn't do anything. Now, supposedly, 
this notoriety he got for being the president of Law Review, the first black American president, is what led to him getting a contract uh, for a book about race relations, which became the book Dreams from My Father. And there's a lot of people that said he really didn't write it. It was ghostwritten. And I wouldn't put it past him to have it ghostwritten because I've seen the guy speak when he doesn't have a teleprompter and he's a bumbling idiot. So I have to believe that he probably writes the same way unless somebody else writes for him. He can't put together a coherent thought. Unless it's written down on paper. Now, he continued to meander through these various public relations projects, taught a little bit at law school, taught constitutional law at the University of Chicago Law School for 12 years, first as a lecturer. So basically, if you're teaching in a school, especially a law school, you're teaching these theoretical things, that's a do-nothing job. You can see the type of... uh, quality people are being turned out by our higher institutions of learning, mostly indoctrinated, not educated. And then you can go on the internet and find this stuff. I mean, you can go on there and look at various uh, online encyclopedias, Wikipedia, talk about his legislative career. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. When you start looking at Barack Obama's legislative career, you'll notice that it's more a listing of positions that he's held rather than achievements that he attained while in those positions. And this is very, very, very important because this is the same thing that was done with Hillary Clinton. When they put together her resume, they make it sound like she's the smartest woman in the world and she has such accomplishment. Simply getting a job, especially jobs that are facilitated for you, is not tantamount to achieving anything. Yeah, you achieved an election, you achieved an appointment, but you didn't do anything while you were there. You basically got paid to hold a title. He's an Illinois state senator. Now, as much as I can see, uh, he didn't do very much. He sponsored a law that supposedly increased tax credits, uh, negotiated welfare reform, so they say. Uh, I don't think he sponsored the law that increased tax credits by himself. I think it was a co-sponsoring. He was re-elected to the Illinois state senate and was largely undistinguished there. Now, In 2000, he runs for a congressional seat, and he loses. He loses to an incumbent by a margin of two to one. Then he runs for Senate. He becomes a senator. Now, from here, we all begin to know a little more about Barack Obama, because we saw him make a speech at the Democratic National Convention uh, during uh, was it the 2004 election uh, when George Bush was running against John Kerry? And he made a speech that a lot of people thought should have been given at the Republican convention because he wanted to sound very centrist. And people began to notice him. Young guy, you know, good-looking guy. He's African-American, up-and-coming. Did nothing as a U.S. senator except just keep his ass in a seat. Voted president a lot, but didn't do anything. And then we all know he gets elected president. The media destroyed George W. Bush with negative, uh, negative publicity. And usually it's unusual for a party to hold the White House for three terms in a row. The exception in the modern era was Reagan-Bush. You can't point to a single legislative achievement of this man. Obamacare 
the Affordable Care Act is something he had nothing to do with in terms of writing. He simply signed off on it. He didn't do much else. Everything else he tried to do, he did nothing with immigration reform. Uh, he, he did very stupid things like sending a plane load full of cash over to uh, Iran, something if anybody else did, they'd been drawn and quartered. Uh, he wrote a lot of executive orders, all of which were countermanded by Donald Trump when he became elected, but he has no lasting legacy. His economic policies were disastrous. He never had more than 1.8% economic growth in any quarter. He chased jobs out of this country, bragged uh, and, and waxed poetic about Donald Trump's promises to bring certain jobs back, saying, what's he going to do, wave a magic wand? What's he going to do, wave a magic wand, bring those jobs back? Well, he brought those jobs back, President Obama. And I think it's resentful, it's contemptible that some of these people in the media try and credit you with the economy and say that Trump just inherited a good economy. Trump inherited, inherited crap from you because that's what you did for eight years. Shit. Now, let's turn to Herman Cain. Let's look at Herman Cain's CV. And mind you, most of what is written in Barack Obama's um, online presence uh, is really, like I said, just a, a listing of positions that he's held, not so much accomplishments that he's achieved. Uh, and let's, for those of you out there who have forgotten, the most anti-Israeli president we've ever had. Now let's go to Mr. Herman Cain. Now Herman Cain was given nothing in his life. He was born in the South in Memphis. His mother was a cleaning woman. His father was a domestic worker. He was raised on a farm, worked as a barber, janitor, and a chauffeur for the Coca-Cola company. Cain said, his quote was that he grew up poor but happy. I love guys like Herman Cain because everything he did was self-made. 67, graduates from Morehouse College with a degree in mathematics, then gets a Master of Science in Computer Science from Purdue. Then while working full-time as a ballistics analyst for the Department of the Navy as a civilian, all this time he's going to Purdue getting a Master of Science degree. After he completes his degree from Purdue, he leaves the Navy and begins working for the Coca-Cola Company in Atlanta as a computer systems analyst. Then in 77, he moves to Minneapolis and joins Pillsbury. Pillsbury, I'm sorry. And then he soon became the director of business analysis in its restaurant and foods group in 78. At the age of 36, he was assigned to analyze and manage 400 Burger King stores in the Philadelphia area. Now, I'm going to tell you a little personal story about that that I remember reading back then. At that time, the Philadelphia area was the worst area for Burger King. And the reason why he was assigned it is because Burger King is a subsidiary uh, of Pillsbury. So they sent Herman Cain there because they needed somebody that could fix it. It was the worst performing area. Under his administration, the Philadelphia area for Burger King posted such strong improvement in three years that according to an account written in the Minneapolis Star Tribune, 
Pillsbury's then-president, Wynne Whalen, said that he was an excellent bet. Herman always seemed to have his act together. He turned it into the most profitable region for Pillsbury in terms of Burger King. Three years from the worst to the most profitable. Because of his success there, Pillsbury appointed him president and CEO of another subsidiary, Godfather Pizza. He got there on April 1st, made a joke that I'm Herman Cain and this ain't no April's Fool's joke. We are not dead. He wound up improving Godfather's Pizza to the point where a group of investors uh, thought enough of it to actually buy it from Pillsbury. Kane then served as the chairman of the board of the Federal Reserve Bank from Kansas City, Omaha branch from January of 89 to December of 91. The guy just continued to go, continued to move. After leaving Godfather's Pizza, he moved to D.C., served as the CEO of the National Restaurant Association, a trade group lobbying organization for the restaurant industry. I mean, the guy's list of achievements just go on and on and on and on and on. The guy became so well-known that the former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Jack Kemp, himself a former vice presidential candidate, referred to Herman Cain as the Colin Powell of American capitalism. Now, Herman Cain was actually my choice for president in 2012 when Barack Obama was running for re-election. I wound up supporting Mitt Romney, and I'm sorry I did. In, in light of what he's shown himself to be with his conduct towards Donald Trump and his votes that he's taken. Mitt Romney's a piece of shit, and I hope he never goes any further than he is right now as senator from Utah. He's disgraceful. But Herman Cain was my guy. I thought he could put America on solid footing. But because he was black, but conservative, not liberal, they derailed him with sexual harassment allegations. And you never really heard much more from it once he dropped out. So I don't know how viable those allegations were. But again, even if they were, by their own standards that they've set, how could they find anything contemptible about anything that Herman Cain could have been accused of, given that they sat idly by while they had a rapist in the White House in Bill Clinton? I mean, it's just ridiculous. In 2019, Donald Trump uh, made known his intentions to, no- intentions to nominate Herman Cain to one of the vacant seats on the Federal Reserve Board. But again, the sexual allegations came up. People were aware they had been made back in the election, so he withdrew in 2019. So here we have one man who is devoid of any achievement other than getting himself elected to the presidency without ever having had a real job, running the country into the proverbial economic ground, foisting upon us socialized medicine, which was a disaster, and he's hailed as some great savior and some great, great figure in American politics. And he's still out there beating his gums, speaking untruths, trying to equate the beating of peaceful civil rights 
protesters in the 60s with the putting down of an absolute rebellion in Portland, Oregon, with the arrest of people who are trying to burn down courthouses and kill federal judges. People who are pointing lasers in the eyes of police officers to permanently blind them. People who are doing all manner of evil. This, he equates. Herman Cain, on the other hand, a man who never asked for anything, was never given anything, made everything, deserved everything he ever got, he's going to be forgotten because of a sexual allegation. I want to see what people say at his funeral. And if it even comes close to the fawning they did over John Lewis. Not that John Lewis didn't deserve a good funeral, but God damn it, Herman Cain deserves one too. Enough is enough. Herman Cain even played a pivotal role in defeating the Clinton health care plan, which was the first attempt to force this horse shit at us down our throats. And in case you didn't know what that was going to be like, that plan would have underdone decades of collective bargaining. Whereas you were going to go into one health plan, government owned, no private policies, no choice in the matter, so that all the years of wage increases your union elected to forego in exchange for increased health benefits, that was all going to go by the wayside because you were going to get uh, a government plan, same as everybody else, and worse yet, whatever the municipality that you work for spent in terms of contributing to the cost of that plan, that was going to be considered a taxable benefit. So not only were we going to get a diminution in your health care, you were going to have to pay income tax on that money as a benefit. This is what you had going on. So this is just a little about what we have planned for this week, but I couldn't resist taking the opportunity. I, I know this isn't like the electric type show that we normally like to put off, but it's very important from a historical perspective to know these things, that you have a do-nothing. You could be a do-nothing, but if you're in the Democratic Party, they make you out to be a hero. You can be in everything in the Republican Party, and they make you out to be a zero. So there's your alternative. There's your comparison. Democrat, you're a hero. Republican, you're a zero. That's the mainstream media. And never forget, my friends, that none of this would be possible. None of this deception could be foisted upon you if it were not for a complicit media that has completely abandoned its role and obligation to act as journalists and those who are supposed to hold power to account. Not simply when a Republican is, is in an office, but when anyone is in office. Later this week, we're going to be talking about the new social media, things like Parler, and the necessity for a conservative alternative to Facebook, and we hope you'll join us for that. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury. Please follow our podcasts as soon as we're listed on Apple and on Google, and tune in often. Thank you.